So at some point, maybe it's been a while for some, but you sat through a class on U.S. government. So a little pop quiz for you this morning. Are you ready? You have your pencil ready? Article 6, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Don't laugh. Article 6, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution is known as what? This is not a multiple choice. This is a fill in the blank. It is known as the Supremacy Clause. Article 6, Clause 2 establishes that the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land and takes priority over any conflicting state laws. I didn't know about the Supremacy Clause when I was a child, but in our home we had something similar. It sounded like this, yeah, Dad, but Mom said. <laughs> Conflicts inevitably arise, don't they? When, when newlyweds set out to celebrate their first holiday together, they quickly realize that their traditions aren't the same. Is the cranberry sauce from the can a necessity on the Thanksgiving table? Do you open presents on Christmas Eve? If so, how many are you allowed to open? <laughs> there exists in all of us a supremacy clause. When conflicts come up, when we need to determine our next step, we all have a word. We all have a word that takes priority over all others. And so maybe that word is, is simply what our families have done before us. We decide to get married, well, because it's what the family expects. Maybe that word is, is just what your friends are currently doing. And so we, we hop on the latest bandwagon, well, because we just don't want to get left behind. Maybe that word is what seems popular, on the right side of history. And so maybe we're tempted to alter a long-held belief, well, because we don't want to be on the wrong side of things. Really, why do any of us do the things we do? Why do we make this choice and not another? Believe this and not something else. Right? We can ask it about our church, can't we? Why do we listen to a monologue once a week based on some passage from a really old book? Might there be another way, something a bit more entertaining, something more relevant? Why do we confess our sins each Sunday? That's kind of a downer way to start your morning, isn't it? Why do we have elders? And what do they actually do? Why do we have membership? Isn't that a bit exclusive, almost exclusive, almost like a country. And far too often, yes, Everch, we fail to examine ourselves in our practices. We don't press hard enough and ask, whose word are we obeying? Whose beat are we marching to? Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is once again confronted by the Pharisees and scribes, and in his debate with them, he, expo he exposes what has falsely become supreme in their lives. He shows them whose word they have chosen to follow. And it's a challenge to us. 
to consider what we've allowed to bind our consciences and have the ultimate priority over us. So our passage this morning goes from the gospel according to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, And hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You'll notice if you were here last week, this passage is similar to the one we studied. There, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders because his disciples were plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Here, Jesus is approached by these men because of what his disciples are not doing, proving that sometimes you just can't win. And the issue is, as one commentator noted, the issue is not one of hygiene, but of ceremonial impurity. So notice those who approach Jesus are are not accusing the disciples of of actually doing anything in violation of the law. No one is claiming the disciples were were enjoying a, a pulled pork sandwich that afternoon. The Pharisees and the scribes' problem is that the disciples' failure to ceremonially wash their hands violated the tradition of the elders. This was, a, this was an oral tradition that was intended to be, a, to be a fence around the law. You know, whenever there's been a, a cake or a pie in my house, I've been told not to eat it until after dinner. I have found that it's been necessary not to look at it until after dinner. See, the oral tradition functioned that way. It was meant to ensure the law was kept. And so it's no surprise that that over time, this tradition kept extending the law beyond its original scope. 
See, ceremonial washing pertained to the priest. So for example, the Lord instructed Moses to have Aaron and his sons wash their hands and feet when they came to the tent of meeting to minister. And so what developed over time was kind of a, a what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If the priest had to go through ceremonial washing, well, the safe thing would be to have everyone follow the priestly regulations. So notice in verse 3, Mark says that all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. He doesn't mean all. He simply is conveying that this had become a widespread practice. This oral tradition, as one put it, the oral tradition was vocal where the law was silent. Right? It's unusual, isn't it, when laws actually come off the books. Right? It's our tendency to add rule upon rule, tradition upon tradition, hoping maybe that will restore order, that might bring morality back into fashion. And for the Pharisees, what's key is that the tradition wasn't a matter of, of personal preference. For them, the tradition was binding on everyone. It was the way to live the proper life. It was the way to live a life of real devotion to God. And so Jesus' failure to enforce the tradition on his disciples was in their eyes a threat to the Jewish identity. For the Pharisees, God, God could not be honored apart from the tradition. But for Jesus, allegiance to tradition meant nothing to God. It was, it was all sizzle and no steak. And beginning in verse 6, we're given Jesus' response. And notice, similar to last week, Jesus doesn't mention his disciples. He doesn't, he doesn't explain their nonconformity. What Jesus does first is offer his estimation of the Pharisees. He, he, he begins by, by giving his evaluation of their religion. His conclusion is that they are hypocrites, pretenders. Literally, they are play actors. They are wearing a mask. Right? They claim to be one thing, but are actually another. And they appear, they appear by their meticulous devotion to these traditions to be near God, when in actuality they are distant from him. And then in verse 8, Jesus gives his reason for this conclusion that he states in verses 6 to 7. They are hypocrites because, as verse 8 says, they have left the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And what does that look like? Well, that's what Jesus provides in verses 9 to 13. He offers an example of the, of the hypocrisy the Pharisees have made their home. You see, a tradition had developed where a son could withhold support for his parents by declaring his property to be dedicated to God, that is, korban. 
And if it was dedicated to God, it was thus off limits to the parents, right? The practice would have involved the son taking a vow, but it did not necessarily mean that the property was immediately handed over to the temple. And actually, it did not prohibit the son from using the property for himself because these vows became all about semantics. The son was actually free to use his property as he wished. The only thing he could not do is use his property to benefit his parents since in his vow, he explicitly excluded them from any benefit. And so while I'm sure Jesus would have some harsh words for the one making the vow, his anger is directed towards the religious authorities. So look at verse 12. Speaking to the Pharisees and scribes, he accuses them of not allowing the one who made this vow to do anything for his parents. And why is that? I think what's behind his accusation is the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes must have had, they must have had some role in the enforcement of the vow. Right? Perhaps the son woke up one morning. He remembered all that mom and dad had done for him over the years, and he wanted to change his mind. He had a sudden change of heart. Well, because of their devotion to tradition, the Pharisees and scribes would have stood in the way. They would have been the ones demanding that the vow be fulfilled because tradition had become supreme. This tradition had taken priority over everything, even the words given to Moses by the Lord. Honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So notice, Jesus doesn't rely upon anything other than scripture to prove the wrongness of the tradition. He doesn't allude to some tradition or some other school that's older than the one honored by the Pharisees. We can make, we can make vows till the cows come home, but our words, no matter how serious and pious they sound, they can never overrule God's unchanging word. We cannot insist on something, especially in the areas of of our worship and our doctrine that is not contained in the word of God. According to Jesus, that is a form of hypocrisy. So what does it look like to honor God with our lips while our hearts are far from him? It looks like hollowing out the word of God. Our traditions, like the ones cited here, they can look pious. A religious tradition might require diligence. It might require sacrifice. But if it stands in opposition to God's word, it is empty. And the point here isn't that we must abandon all traditions. I, I just don't think that's possible. Traditions have a, a place in our lives. They can be helpful. Uh, there's comfort, there's stability in keeping traditions. G.K. Chesterton advised that we never 
take down a fence until we know why it is there. And we can do a lot of damage if we just run around tearing up well-placed fences. And yet, human traditions cannot displace the word of God from its supreme place in our lives. It is the word of God that can ultimately tell us whether that fence needs to be uprooted or not. So when it comes to the debate between our traditions and God's word, there is simply no contest. And in commenting on this passage, Mark, Mark Dever noted that it is actually a harsher passage for those who claim to worship God than it is to those who don't. It is a harsher passage for us. And his point is that those who regularly hear the word of God, those who believe in its divine inspiration, those who confess its truthfulness, are without excuse when we choose anything over the word of God. We are, we are imperfect, I know. We are imperfect in our application of God's word. Right here at Spring Hill, one of our stated values is that we believe in the word of God lived out. And if you're here visiting or just need to be reminded, we don't do it perfectly. We don't do it perfectly in our private lives. We don't do it perfectly corporately. But what is critical is our posture. Are we open to being challenged and corrected by God's word? Is there a genuine desire to know what it says? Do we hold our traditions loosely? Or do we get upset when our favorite tradition, and that's all it is, when our favorite tradition changes? That's why we believe it's important, crucial, that our sermons unfold the word. Our task is to hear from God and submit to him. It is never the pastor's prerogative or the elders, or some church council to determine what the church believes. God determines what we believe. He has spoken, and by his word, spiritual life is given. Human words, human traditions do not create life. You see, I have no power or authority to bind your conscience on your own. If, you, if I did, you'd all be watching a lot more college basketball in the winter. <laughs> I cannot insist that you adhere to some tradition. I cannot insist that you adhere to some tradition that is contrary to God's word or in addition to it. No tradition, no matter its history, no matter who stands behind it, can require your faith or obedience if it makes void what God has revealed and spoken in his word. This is what the Reformation recovered. It recovered that the word, 
not an ecclesiastical authority, but the word alone regulates our faith and our life. There is no human teaching that is worth leaving the commandments of God for. And that's because there is no human teaching that can accomplish what God's word is able to do. Remember, the ceremonial washing the Pharisees were advocating for, it only had the appearance of making someone clean. In the next set of verses after our passage, Jesus made clear what the real issue was. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Within the heart of man, Within the heart of man is the violation, not of some tradition, but of the commandments of God. At our root, we are lawbreakers who cannot become something different on our own. But there is only one word that can set us free from the evil that dwells within. It is the word about Jesus Christ who died to purchase our freedom from the guilt of sin and free us from the bondage to Satan and the dominion of sin. It is the freedom from the victory of the grave. It is freedom from an everlasting damnation. Our liberty, as one author has written, our liberty rests in having the light of the gospel in our eyes being able to look to God's word and in knowing that we can measure all other words by it. When we have the word of God, we can worship God with liberty for we know what God wants. When we live under Christ's lordship and have God's word as our guide, the truth will set us free. Friends, are you enjoying, are you enjoying the liberty that you have in Christ. You see, there are things that have the appearance of wisdom. There are traditions that are stressed, that seemed necessary to know God and be right with him. But we are bound to nothing else than the life-giving words of God. Our obligation to obey his word, it is our freedom. It is true joy. We don't need to be engaged in some human process or ritual that holds out this hope that one day we might be made clean. What we need is to be washed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a perfect and complete washing that all of our sins and stains, blemishes and wrinkles, they are done away with by that word. Faith, the Apostle Paul tells us, comes from hearing. And it is hearing the word of Christ. 
faith in mere human traditions and teachings. No matter our sincerity or how devoted we might be to those things, they are of no value to our salvation. It must be faith. It must be faith in the good news about Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for all those who would turn to him in trust. It is the good news that death could not hold Christ, that he was raised on the third day, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, proving that his sacrifice was perfectly satisfactory to God for all time. That word, that word is worth making supreme in your life. That is the word that we want to be about here. That's the word that we want to be reminded of each Sunday. It's the word that we want to be built up in. It's the word that gives life. And perhaps, perhaps the disciples didn't submit to a ceremonial washing because it was an early picture of what it looks like to have the Lord Jesus as your master. See, when Jesus is present, as he is with us by the Spirit, where Jesus is present, there is freedom. It is, it is, it is freedom from all the burdens that we could not lift. Freedom from all the sins that would condemn us eternally. It is a freedom to listen to God alone. It is freedom to enjoy his grace as those who've been brought into his family by the blood of the son. Let us pray. Almighty we, God, we do ask that you would take the truths of your word, that you would take them into our hearts. We pray that your word may rule and reign in our lives, that we would taste and enjoy all that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.